Do me a favor, uh, turn in your Bible to the Gospel of John chapter 11. We'll be in mostly all of it tonight, which is a lot. It's like 70, no, it's like 40 verses. We're gonna jump around. Um, I realize though that it's been a couple weeks. And so for those of you who are new with us, you may not know that we've spent the better part of this year in John's Gospel. One of the things that we do as a ministry is we try and pick like one book of the Bible that we sit in for a year at a time. And more often than not, we, it lasts longer than a year because I find all sorts of cool things in my study and I say, we're gonna to need to spend at least 10 more weeks on this. Uh, but we are 13 sermons into John's gospel. And we're in, in the middle section where, where John's gospel sort of turns the corner. We move to the third act. Uh, sometimes scholars call this section of John's gospel the book of signs. And they call it that because it's the, the part of John where Jesus does all of his miracles. So the things like turning water into wine and healing the lame and opening the eyes of the blind. It's, it's all of these miraculous actions of Jesus. It's not all the miracles Jesus did, but it's the ones that John focuses on. But it's important to recognize that John doesn't record these signs of Jesus just as interesting magic tricks. Like, like they're not just there to kind of be cool or neat or impressive. The reason why John includes all these signs in the middle of his gospel is because Jesus has been saying some absolutely ridiculous things for the whole gospel. Um, he's been saying things like, before Abraham was, I am, which is to say like I've always existed. Uh, he's been taking for himself the name of God. He's been claiming that he's divine. Uh, he's talked about having the power to forgive sins. He's been doing all of these things, he's been making all of these statements that any like normal person would hear coming out of the mouth of another person and go, you're gonna have to back that up. I, I'm not just gonna believe that you've always existed when like I know where you were born. And so the signs are there ultimately to, to confirm that what Jesus is saying about himself is true. It, it's like the, the ultimate occurrence of prove it. I don't know if this ever happened to you. When I was in the sixth grade, I switched from a very sheltered private Christian school to a public school. And um, I was a sheltered private Christian school kid. And so I, I switched to this public school where like the only time I've heard curse words are like when I watched movies and I would wince every time I heard it to, <laughs> to being in, in a public school with everything that comes with that. And it was a really healthy thing for me. But I remember walking into the lunchroom the, the first day and going, I don't know anyone. Like my cousin went to this school, but we didn't have the same lunch period. And I, I walked in and I was like, I'm just gonna have to sit at a table and like talk to somebody. And so I sit down at this table with people who just look nice, which you should never judge people by the way they look because people look nice and then they are awful. Um, but these people actually were nice. And, and so I sit down and I like strike up a conversation with one of the guys there. And it, I think the question was something like, so like, what do you do for fun? And he launches on the craziest story I've ever heard about how he like drives race cars competitively. This is middle school, this is seventh grade, right? So he's 11 years old. And he tells me how he's a competitive race car driver and how just this past weekend, like as he was driving around the track, there was like a car that exploded and he had to weave past it. And, and I really want friends. So I just go with it. I'm like, I guess this 11-year-old is a race car driver. And, and I'm, just, I'm just rolling with it. And I'm asking him questions about his race car. And I don't know anything about cars. I still don't know anything about cars. But then one of the other guys at the table was actually friends with him. <laughs> kind of looks at me and he's like, he says this stuff every week. Prove it, Stephen. Like, you're 11 years old. You don't even have a driver's license. You can't drive a race car. 
Because what he's saying is ridiculous. And my friend, who I came to know over the next two years, called him on it. You can't just say you're a race car driver at 11. Like, you can't even shave, bro. Point being, you make wild statements and you have to back it up. Jesus has made all of these wild statements and the miracles are there as sort of the ultimate prove it, just so you know what I'm saying has validity and here's how I wanna show you. And we come to here in chapter 11, this really famous passage in the gospel of John. And it is, it is the ultimate sort of prove it for Jesus. It is the ultimate stamp on his ministry before he, before he turns towards the cross, which is what the rest of John's gospel is about as he, as he goes through the Passion Week. This is the ultimate and final stamp of approval on Jesus's public ministry before his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. So let me read the beginning of this passage for us as we jump in and we'll, we'll work uh, sort of here and there through chapter 11. We're told in 11.1 that a certain man was ill Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Martha and her sister, or the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the son of God might be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. So the situation is this. We've got uh, this family that if, if you've been around church, you've heard their names before, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. These are people who were kind of operating in Jesus's circle. Uh, it was a family that Jesus had grown to be really close with. And, and that's just worth considering because especially if you've grown up in church, we so often think of Jesus as a figure in isolation on a stained glass window. But what, but what this says is that Jesus was a real human being who had friends, like who laughed at jokes and enjoyed good food and, and had people who, who he was close with. This family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. But Jesus receives word while he's away from them in their hometown of Bethany, he receives word from one of Mary's friends who, who comes and finds Jesus and says, the person you love is ill. That is Lazarus. And, and I don't know if, the, if this struck you, but, but that's such a strange way to relay that information to Jesus. Because we're maybe two years into Jesus's public ministry. So Jesus has healed the sick, um, walked on water, uh, he's opened the eyes of the blind. He's caused lame people to be able to walk. And we should expect Jesus's friends have at least heard about maybe one or two of these things, right? They're, they are incredibly familiar with the fact that Jesus can heal people who are sick. And yet the message that they send is not, Lazarus is sick, can you come fix it? Lazarus is sick, can you come heal him? The message they send is, the one you love is ill. I love, I love what Augustine says about this passage. He, he asks the question like, why don't they ask Jesus to heal him? Why do they just say someone you love is suffering? And, and Augustine says, this is why, because they know that Jesus is not one to love and then desert the people he loves. That it is enough to know that Jesus loves Lazarus. And that all they have to do is say to Jesus, someone you love is hurting and they know that Jesus will do the right thing. 
They don't need to ask for healing. They know that Jesus doesn't abandon the people he loves. But I'll, I'll tell you that, that that simple fact raised by the Bishop of Hippo some 1600 years ago, that simple reality is one of the hardest things I've ever had to grasp in my Christian life. Because it is not difficult for me to believe that God is good in some cosmic sense, like that everything will work out at the end and then at the end I'll see why it was the way it was. It's not difficult for me to even believe that God like loves me in some vague sense. But it is really, really hard for me to believe that Jesus loves me enough to do what's right for me. And yet, Mary and Martha know he's not one to love and then abandon those who he loves. So they say, Lord, the one that you love is sick. And then John almost kind of bends over backwards to explain how much Jesus cares for this family. Uh, Maybe you notice this in verse five. He says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So what, what would you expect would come next? Jesus loves these people, so he went right away. Jesus loves these people, so he dropped everything he was doing and he went and he helped. Jesus loves these people, so he like snapped his fingers and, and walked in a circle and all of a sudden, just like the centurion's son, Lazarus was healed. Jesus loved these people and so he said, hey, here's the doctor who can fix it. Those are all the things you would expect. Maybe not the walk in a circle and snap his fingers thing. But you would expect Jesus loves these people and so he does something. John says, Jesus loved these people. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two more days before he went to visit him. I don't don't know that I fully understand this. I've I've, I've wrestled with it this week as I've looked at this text, as as I've kind of um, pondered it. And yet there, there seems to be Something about the love of Christ. Sometimes Jesus's love for us is most profound when he lets us sink to our lowest. And and it's not that he stops loving us in that process, but that somehow through that process, he is loving us better than if he just stepped in and fixed it right away. It's as if John says, Jesus loved Lazarus, so he let him die. Corey and I were having a conversation about it this week because Corey just finished Greek, and so I wanted to make sure that this was in the Greek and I wasn't going to make a huge point out of something that's not actually in the Bible. Um, something he said struck me is that sometimes God loves us by letting us come to the end of ourselves. Sometimes God loves us by letting us spin our wheels until there's nothing but thread left so that he can step in and we will know that it was only him that fixed it. I, I hit this wall, I think most clearly in my life, probably sometime between 2014 and 2015. Um, and I've, I've talked about this a number of times before. Um, always wrestled with sort of OCD and anxiety and stuff ever since I was a little kid. Um, but in, in 2014, 2015, it felt like something broke in my head. Um, and, and I started to really question whether Christianity was true. And I had a lot of questions. 
and the questions would get answered and then I'd have more questions and then I'd have an answer and then I'd have more questions and it just compounded and compounded and compounded and there were doctor's visits and they put me on medication that didn't do anything but make me fat. And so I ate my feelings, which made me fatter. I, the only time I didn't worry was when I was asleep, but I couldn't sleep because all I was doing was worrying. And, and there came this point where I was sitting at my counter in my kitchen um, at the end of myself, so tired of worrying. And, and I had this conversation with God um, and God has, I've never heard the audible voice of God. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. I've never heard it. I didn't, it didn't happen here, but it's the closest it's ever come. I remember looking at the ceiling of my apartment and saying, I know you love me. Please make this stop. Like, I know that you can fix this. Please make it stop. And as clearly as I've heard anything, God said, not yet. It wasn't two more days for me. It was like two more years before Jesus showed up at the tomb. And yet, as, and yet as painful as that was and as hard as it was to walk through that, when I look back on it, I can see that Jesus loved me by letting me come to the end of myself. Jesus loved me by waiting two more days before he showed up and did something about it. And you might be there right now. You're shaking your fists at the heavens and you're going, I thought you loved me. And Jesus is saying, it is because I love you that I haven't stepped in yet. So Jesus waits two more days. And then finally, he shows up. In verse 17, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and she met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, don't, don't think that the days are insignificant in this passage. Um, Jesus waits two days, and then Jesus gets there four days after the death of Lazarus. And, and that number is not unimportant. Um, what we know from reading some of the, uh, the rabbinic writings right around this time is that there was this belief that, that Jewish people had uh, that the spirit, when someone died, the spirit hovered over the body for two to three days. There were two or three days where the spirit sort of hovered around the body, hoping to be reunited to it. But by the end of the third day, the spirit was gone. It was in Sheol. It was in the place of the dead, which you might recognize because we read it in our psalm, because all the passages we read in worship connect to what we're talking about. So when Jesus, when Jesus shows up on the fourth day, Lazarus has been in the tomb four days. He is showing up to a house full of people know that there is nothing left of the person that they love to be fixed. He's showing up to a house full of people who know that all hope is gone. He is showing up to a house full of people who know that this can't be mended. It can't be made right. Lazarus is gone. And so when she says, if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. You wouldn't have died. It's not just that. It's even if you came a day or two later, maybe you could have restuck what came unglued. Jesus shows up and he is gone in their minds. 
But the fact that Jesus shows up on the fourth day is, is so profound. Because it's as if he says in, in, in stepping into this moment, it, it's as if he says that there is no death that is beyond resurrection. That there is no depth to brokenness that can't be mended. And, and we have to hear this. Like I have to remind myself of this especially when we, when we struggle with, with sin and we feel like we've gone too far and God can't fix it and God can't make it right. And it's, it's all so broken that how on earth could it ever be made better? Jesus is showing up on the fourth day. Lazarus is gone. And Jesus is saying, even now, resurrection is possible. Even now, I can make right what has gone wrong. Even now, I can mend what is broken, especially now that you don't think it's possible. The voice of Jesus brings resurrection to what is dead in us because of our sin and because of the brokenness of the world. And it does so even when it doesn't seem like it can happen. So Jesus shows up on the fourth day and he has this conversation with Martha, who is obviously grieving, but trying to have faith in the midst of her grief. And then in verse 28, after he's talked to Martha, she went and she called her sister Mary saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and she went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. So, so Mary runs out of the city to meet Jesus. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. And they followed her supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. And when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Like how, how often do we ask that question of God or say that in the midst of our pain? God, if you had just done something, this wouldn't have happened. If you, if you had acted, I wouldn't be going through this. And then... Jesus saw her weeping in verse 33 and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved and he was greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And we come to the shortest verse in all of the Bible. Jesus wept. It's the one that you memorized if you had to memorize a verse for a Bible class. Maybe... The phrase sounds familiar. Jesus asks this question to them. Where have you laid Lazarus? And they respond, Lord, come and see. That phrase should sound familiar to you because Jesus has been saying it to people over and over and over again in the gospel. Or the disciples have been saying that as they bring people to Jesus. Come and see the glory of God. Come and see what Jesus is up to. Come and see the power of God. Come and see what God is doing in the world. But now it's reversed. Now Jesus isn't inviting people to come and see him. These people are inviting Jesus to come and see the brokenness that has visited their lives. They say to Jesus, come and see this nightmare that we're living through. Come and see the horror of what sin has done to the world. Come and see this event that has totally shattered us. Everybody is crying. Not just, not just the siblings of Lazarus, the whole crowd is weeping and they say, come and see how awful this is. 
What does Jesus do? That is, that is so significant for us. Like in the midst of our, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our, of our grief, in the midst of our shame, and in the midst of our sin, that we have the ability not just to hear Jesus tell us, come and see my goodness, but we can say to Jesus, come and see my brokenness, and he weeps with us. Jesus weeps. He, he doesn't stand away indifferently and go, it's all gonna be okay one day, even though it will. No, he comes and he sees and he mourns. But Jesus doesn't stop with mourning. He says in verse 34, where have you laid him? And they eventually take him to Lazarus. We're told in verse 38, Jesus was deeply moved again and he came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And I wonder if Jesus knew that this is what was coming for him. And he said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead already for four days. Now, um, I live in this very old apartment and there's a crawl space under my living room that's maybe like got that much space under it. Um, and probably a week, two, three weeks ago, something died under the crawl space. And I know, <laughs> I know because I can smell it. I can't get under the crawl space to fix it. So I'm being persecuted by the scent of this raccoon or whatever it is. Um, that's ridiculous, right? That happens in our houses, but, but it underscores a reality. The, 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 the most profound and immediate consequence of sin is death and death is ugly. It's, it's repulsive. There's a reason why we don't look at roadkill when we drive past it. There's a reason why I don't love the smell coming out from under my bathroom. There's, there's an ugliness to the consequences of sin. And, and, and what's happening here when Jesus asks to see the place where Lazarus is and says, roll away the stone, let me see the full extent of what has happened. They wanna shield Jesus from the ugliness of the reality. It's gonna smell, it's gonna be gross. It's gonna rain. as if Jesus is afraid of it, as if Jesus comes to, to the ugliness of sin and the consequences of sin and he turns his nose up at it. But that's not what Jesus does. They, they say, Jesus, you don't, you're not gonna like what you see. You're not gonna like what you smell. You don't wanna see how ugly this really is. And Jesus says, roll away the stone anyways. That matters because when it comes time for us to repent of sin, it's really easy for us to hold back and go, you don't, you don't wanna see the ugliness of what my sin has done. You don't wanna see the, the death that it's caused. But Jesus is not afraid of that. He says, roll away the stone anyways. So they roll away the stone. And Jesus says to Mary, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone and he lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, 
But I said this on account of the people standing around that they might believe that you have sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out. His hands, his feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him, let him go. And in this instance, Jesus confronts and destroys the most significant consequence of sin, which he'll fully do through his substitution on the cross, but he confronts death itself. And, and, and the, the voice that speaks the stars into being from non-being now speaks in such a way that the soul and body of Lazarus that have been torn apart are united together once again, that the consequence of sin and death and decay is undone. Can, can I just tell you this as, as we come to the, the end of our time together? Jesus still issues this command to us. Come forth out of the grave, out of the decay and the darkness of sin and wickedness. There is no death that is so deep that I cannot call you forth to resurrection and newness of life. In the midst of all of this pain, Jesus weeps with us. Confronts our darkness and says, roll away the stone. By the power of his word, he says to us, come forth. and Raises us to walk in newness of life. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that because of Jesus, you always hear us. Just as you heard Jesus. We thank you that you hear us. God, we thank you that there is no death too deep that you can't bring us back to life. God, whatever we wrestle with, the, the sadness, the grief, the shame, the sin, the sickness, the things that, that feel like tombs that we will never escape from, God, use the words of scripture now to encourage us. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That he can take whatever has died in us and restore it. He can take whatever is broken in us and renew it by his word, through his cross. You've called us out of the grave. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room, whatever it is that, they, that they're struggling with, whatever grief it is that weighs heavy on their heart, whatever, whatever uh, darkness they find themselves in, whatever sickness afflicts them. God, we know, we know that there is resurrection for these things. Power of Jesus, God, we pray that you would impress these things on our heart. And we ask that you would do all of these things in Jesus' name. Say amen.